Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. We are experimenting with something new. We are in two different locations. And so bear with us as we get expert at this new um, at this new procedure. But I'm excited. I think we can make it work. Uh, today, we are heading um, into Matthew, uh, Parables of the Kingdom, chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. And then it jumps to 30, 36 through 43. So I'm going to let Alan jump in with this. Well, and I, I, on behalf of both of us, I want to issue an apology to our loyal listeners for the fact that we were not able to get a podcast recorded last week between personal um, um, uh, situations in my life and Christy's life. Uh, it just didn't happen. And so we are, I am going to talk a little bit about the parable of the, the sower today, but just mainly as uh, I think we have to take the chapter as a whole um, in order to understand it. Uh, So this week's lesson does continue the discussion of Matthew's parables discourse in chapter 13. But our lesson this week takes us into material that is really unique to Matthew's gospel and reflects Matthew's own concerns. And in fact, although Matthew incorporates some materials from Mark and Q, much of the rest of the parables discourse in Matthew is unique to Matthew. And And this this one for today, which is titled, uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares, it's it's just in Matthew, correct? Yes, it's just in Matthew. That's correct. Uh, that and the interpretation, it's just found in Matthew. Okay, okay. But yeah, now, excellent. what we're dealing with here in Matthew chapter 13, this is the third of Matthew's major discourses. And as with the other two, the, the Sermon on the Mount and the uh, commissioning of the disciples, he collects and reinterprets gospel traditions in keeping with the central themes of his story of Jesus. And what we see in this discourse is Matthew's apocalyptic vision of final judgment, separating those who are aligned with the kingdom from those who are not, who are the good from the evil, coming re- beginning to really come out out in Matthew's gospel for the first time. And this is, I mean, already I'm seeing red flags and difficulties on preaching this oh, in uh, yes. today's context. Yes, absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, you know, I think every time we hit the parables, we need to review parables, yep. what they are, how they work, etc. Yeah. And and so as, as we mentioned before, in the Middle Ages, the church generally saw the parables as allegories that convey deeper meanings that could be discerned by what they called spiritual interpretation. You know, I, I used to teach hermeneutics and I studied this stuff. I still couldn't tell you what that spiritual interpretation was or how they <laughs> arrived at it. It was just, I guess, in, it was something that came to them by illumination of the spirit in their minds. Um, mm-hmm. But in the 19th century, Adolf Ulicher pioneered the view that the parables are not allegories, but rather stories. And one of the things that uh, Ulicher uh, emphasized, Ulicher was, was a pretty, uh, they were called liberal theologians in the late 19th century. This was a particular brand of mm-hmm. theology that was represented by Adolf von Harnack and some others. So basically, Ulicher thought that the stories taught a fairly self-evident basic moral truth mm-hmm. right. and, and and so it was just like almost like an aphorism that that anybody would have been able to embrace which <laughs> if you think about it that doesn't make a lot of sense uh why would people kill someone for for teaching basic truths that everybody would agree with <laughs> I, well i i guess and and to defend him i suppose and i'm not an expert in him at all this idea that um, people could understand it if they listened to it. A, a simple person doesn't have to have all kinds of background to be able to jump into but, the story. But, but, but the, problem is, the problem is that the parables, many of the parables, you know, the, we've talked about this before, they turn the, the whole symbolic world of the hearers upside down. And, and it's do. very unexpected. Yeah, true. And so um, basically what happened then was that, that there came about a debate about the meaning of the parables in Jesus' teaching, which reflected the shifting views about the extent to which the kingdom was already realized in Jesus' ministry. We've talked about that before as well. Uh, Joachim, Jeremias, and C.H. Dodd um, contributed um, mm-hmm. heavily right. to that discussion. In more recent days, New Testament scholarship has recognized that it's a mistake to try to paint all parables with the same brush. 
simply simply put, you know, interpreting the parables is not a one-size-fits-all endeavor. Um, As with any other biblical passage, it's essential to pay attention to the context, both historical and in the narrative, as well as what Jesus was seeking to achieve with the audience and or the, the evangelist. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's some parables that, that are allegories, clearly allegories. There are other right. parables that are just a- aphorisms, you know, why saying? Yeah, right. And, and you, right. Just can't, you just can't make it a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. I think that's, you know, that's important because I do think we tend to say, I, I think we think of them as like the fables, right? Aesop's fables, right. they have this and they have this little, uh, the little story goes along and then the moral of the story at the end, and we kind of expect parables to do that same thing. And they're, kind of they're thing. supposed to make sense. And the thing about it is, mm-hmm. I think for most of Jesus' parables, people went away scratching their heads and think, wondering, what in the world did I just hear? <laughs> right. Well, I think we still do that. Yeah, right. I think, I think we definitely will today as well. Yeah, that's for sure. All so right. We should so, also note that Matthew's parables discourse in chapter 13 is set in a particular context, and that is in, in, in a, it's set in a context of opposition to Jesus' ministry. Um, in, in Matthew 11 and 12, there are a number of episodes that show the rising conflict between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, and this is key, I think, to understanding Matthew's parables discourse. The idea is that the parables in this chapter are intended to address the question of why the Jewish leaders and the people, and indeed the people, rejected Jesus, as well as conveying encouragement about the final success of the kingdom of those who follow him. And so, you know, that's really basically, it, it deals with the question of, you know, Jesus comes and he, and he speaks about the kingdom, and why wouldn't his own people have accepted him? Why wouldn't the leaders have been able to hear the message? And, and um, it also, I think, may address the situation of Matthew's community and the hostility they experienced at the hands of the Jewish community. Uh, that, that would make sense, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and with the broader gospel, I think, too. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anything, anything final before we dig into the, the meat of this? Yeah, I think it's important for us to note Matthew's use of sources. We continue to see a pattern of Matthew using Mark as a main source, again, perhaps implying that Matthew's community was familiar with Mark's gospel. We should note, for example, that the wording of the parable of the sower and its interpretation in Matthew is very close to Mark, but it's not verbatim. So we're not dealing with, with, with Matthew reproducing Mark. We're dealing with just very close wording, not, not verbatim mm-hmm. agreement. But as with the other discourses in Matthew, he rearranges Mark's materials and brings in materials from Q that significantly affect the overall message of the discourse. And indeed, based on our study of Matthew this year, I would say that Matthew's gospel perhaps gives us the strongest evidence for the traditional two-source theory of gospel origins, that Mark and Q were the original sources. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the case in Matthew, that, that Matthew is doing that. Matthew is relying on Mark and Q. But, as I've said before, I think that view is too simplistic to account for all of what we find in the Synoptic Gospels. Mm-hmm. When, you put, mm-hmm. when you put Matthew, Mark, and Luke all together, it becomes more complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that, that, source, that source research is so interesting. I've just... I'm just waiting for Q to show up, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we just we just discovered the the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi codices, you know, know. 1948, could, early 50s. So, you know, who I'm, knows? There might be a cave out there in the desert somewhere where where there's a copy of Q lying around. There you go. There you go. All right. So, um, so I think we have to, in order to go to the day, don't we have to hit this, the parable of the sower briefly? I think we should. To put it in context. I think we should um, um, uh, because the parable of the sower is, is really, itself, is really quite different from the other parables, some of the other parables, at least in Matthew's parables discourse. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important for us to take a, just, a, just a, a quick overview of it. Um, okay. And so th- that's how the parable's discourse begins, really, is, is with what has come to be known as the parable of the sower. I think it's impossible for contemporary audience- audiences to hear the original parable apart from its interpretation later I on. Agree. I agree. I agree. And whether that's a good thing or not depends on how you interpret the overall context. Um, for example, it seems clear even in Mark that the focus of the original parable is on the exceptional and perhaps even surprisingly extraordinary results of the efforts of the sower, despite the lack of response initially. 
And some have suggested that while the interpretation represents the earliest effort to grasp the parable from the church's perspective, it shifts the focus uh, away from the work of the sower to the response of the hearers. And I think that's significant. Uh, Mm. I I would agree with Davies and Allison that while we may not be confident that the interpretation comes from Jesus, and especially in light of the interpretations of the parables of the wheat uh, of the wheat, wheat and the tares, and the parable of the net, as we're going to come to today and, and next week, mm-hmm. the the general theme of both the original parable of the sower and its interpretation is the response to the message of the kingdom, and that's something that is that is kind of the general theme of this chapter. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, I guess what I'm saying is it's not impossible that the interpretation came from Jesus, but unlikely. And, and I, I don't think a, a definitive answer is, is going to be forthcoming. I, you know, I think that's one of the challenges, too, is because we always, in a Revised Common Lectionary, we always have that response piece. And I think it makes it even more difficult to preach on in many, many ways, because then you have this response, and you're responding to the response and the parable itself. Right. And they don't seem to gel in my yeah. my world very well. Well, um, you know, I think the most significant observation is that the parable of sower is about the work of the sower. The par- the interpretation that's given is about the response of the hearers. Exactly. They, they go they go that. in very different directions. I, I exactly and and I'm preaching on this tomorrow um, and I chose to use the as Alan said really the the work of the sower and not mm. the response. But you have to know going in that everyone else expects you to have this kind of response. Absolutely. Like you talked about, they can't hear it outside the interpretation. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Right. All right. Yeah. So moving on, continue on then with the response then. About yeah, the- so, well, following then the parable of the sower in all three Gospels, there's a segment where Jesus, quote unquote, explains his use of parables. And all of the synoptic gospels have some version of Matthew 13, 13. The reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a, a version of Isaiah 6, 9. It's not a quotation, but more of a, 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 of a summary. And it mm-hmm. seems strange, I think, for us in our day to hear Jesus speaking about using parables to keep people from understanding the message of the kingdom But I think we need to understand the context of opposition and rejection that he was facing. Mm -hmm. As in the days of Isaiah, which that's where the original quote comes from, those who harden their hearts against the message find that the parables of Jesus only increase that hardness rather than enabling them to hear and understand. They walk away not understanding instead Mm -hmm. of with with a, with a, a better understanding of what Jesus is about. But here also we find the judgment element of this parable's discourse in Matthew's gospel becoming explicit. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, and hard to get away from, yeah. honestly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, it's, it's I think it, it really is, um, from Matthew's perspective, really becomes the focus of this chapter. And, and you know, we've... Three years ago, when we dealt with some of the parables of Matthew, we saw there were there's a lot of judgment in the parables in the later right. part of Matthew's gospel. I think I think the question that comes to mind, and maybe we could talk, you talk more about this, but is that what Jesus meant by the parables, or is that how Matthew interprets the parables? I I don't see Matthew's interpretation as being consistent with Jesus' teaching in any way, shape, or form. Right, so it might have been Matthew's response to his community and putting being it this under way. fire. Yes, and and yep. the difficulties difficulties that they were finding, similar to what we heard, saw when we looked at we we've seen when we looked at John's gospel. You know that that mm-hmm. situation of conflict called forth a, a fairly harsh kind of response to those who right. were on quote unquote on the other side or on the outside. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. So now we get to move on yeah. <laughs> into, into to today's context. Yeah, and so on the other hand, the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the weeds among the wheat, as it has come mm-hmm. to be known, is, I mean, it's overtly, it's a, a parable of judgment. I, I, In my opinion, there's no other way to read this parable, although there are some, some who have tried, and I'm not talking about 
outliers here. I mean, Edward Schweitzer, Jack Kingsbury, Davies and Allison, you know, these are mainline, mainstream um, um, New Testament scholars and, and, and gospel scholars, and, and they, they know their stuff. And so, mm-hmm. but, but the way they do it, the way they try to re- recover what is, quote unquote, like the original parable of Jesus here is that uh, th- that is not judgment oriented, is that they piecemeal the passage and take parts of it out and attribute it to Matthew's redaction, Matthew's editing. And I have never been convinced by these efforts. And in fact, um, Ulrich Luz, um uh, who also has a pretty magisterial commentary on um, Matthew, says it this way, <laughs> that if there was an original parable, we can hardly recognize its meaning anymore. In other words, he, he's, he's not convinced by the piecemealing of, well, this verse, mm-hmm. this verse was original to Jesus, but the next verse wasn't, you know, and, and that, that kind of approach has never been convincing to me. Hmm, interesting. So, and yet, and yet, I'm going to offer this, in preaching this within a context of modern congregation, I'm not going to go preach judgment. Uh, but so, nor am I. <laughs> so what do you do? Well, do you want to, do you, do you help people get a new hearing for it? Do you help people say, I think this is the context of this broader vision of the kingdom. I think that's the I challenge we face this week. This is one of, this is one of those times when the revised common lectionary really kind of puts us in a bind. I think that I think they do as well because yeah. if you're, you know, uh, I just came from the church where we preach the gospel lesson, revised common lectionary every week, and I have <laughs> preached on this of my four years twice, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, what a challenging mm-hmm. passage it is to continue to bet come up. It you know, I, I don't get the choice. I didn't get the choice to you know, circumvent it. I it was right in front of me. Right now, on the other hand. This section of Matthew's parables discourse clearly presents a selection of parables about the kingdom of heaven. And again, some of them are unique to Matthew, and some of them are common to Matthew and Mark, and some of them are common to Matthew and Luke, and some are common to all three. So, you know, again, we see Matthew's hand in in composing this this parables discourse. But the... It's interesting to note, I think, that the parable of the wheat and the tares is the first occurrence in Matthew of the phrase, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. And Mm -hmm. and that becomes the way in which a lot of these parables of the kingdom are are introduced. In fact, all the rest of the parables in this discourse are introduced in a similar fashion. Mm -hmm. Yes, they are. True, true. So... Um. and, you know, among, among the problems that we have with the parable of the wheat and tares, I think we must at least observe that it depicts, as Luce uh, says in his Matthew commentary, an unusual kind of farming. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And this, when I read this commentary of Alan, I didn't pick up on this. So share, share this. Yeah. So, so the master is the one who sowed the seed, not the servants. I mean, right there. <laughs> really? <laughs> Gathering, True, right? That's not what a master does. Yeah. yeah, no, the servants do the planting. Gathering the weeds would not typically have involved uprooting anything. You don't gather things that way. You know, it's it's you harvest things by by using a scythe and and cutting off the heads, and then mm-hmm. and then at the end, it's the reapers, and not the servants who collect the weeds first. And then the wheat, which is the opposite of what would normally be done. They would normally have collected the wheat first and then left the weeds to be either used as fodder or to be burned. So none of this, none of this makes sense in light of the farming practices in the ancient Near East at that time. And I didn't pick up on any of that until I read this from Alan, but I'm thinking of these listeners being, you know, kind of twisting their head to the side going, what? Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of like that, right? That that tells us all kinds of things. So I, I think Well, it at least, to me, in my mind, at least raises a question about this parable. You know, the parables of Jesus are, are much better constructed than this. <laughs> there are sometimes, there are sometimes, and we'll see today, there are sometimes when Jesus uses sh- surprising and even shocking elements in his parables. But there, there doesn't seem to be any, I mean, this seems to me to reflect Matthew's Christological focus. 
Jesus is the master who does the sewing, you know, and, and yes, and, yes, you know, so and 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 just the whole structure of the parable seems to reflect Matthew's uh, concern oh, about judgment and, and Matthew's apocalyptic worldview. Well, and here it is only in Matthew. Only no in Matthew. Let me this is let me ask you, is this in any of the um, apocrypha? So there actually is a parable, uh, a parallel in the Gospel of Thomas. Interesting. Okay. And, you know, again, some could say, well, that seems to argue for the authenticity of the parable um, in Jesus' teachings. I wouldn't say that necessarily, but it sounds to me like it at least was passing around. It wasn't just maybe... It was known. It could simply be be testament to the influence of Matthew in the early church. Matthew was always the preeminent gospel from the earliest times, the early second century. Matthew was the preeminent gospel. Right, now, so that makes so it, it, it would make sense that that could have been picked up. It depends right? on when you date Thomas. If you're like many many of the scholars in the Jesus Seminar who date Thomas around the time of Q, they see Thomas as being around the time of Q. Then it could be an argument in favor of of, of that this this parable stems from Jesus. I don't buy that. I've never have bought that myself because the copies of the Gospel of Thomas we have the manuscripts actually come from the third and fourth centuries. So that mm-hmm. suggests. I mean, we don't have any. We we don't we don't have any copy. You know, manuscripts prior to that. So that to me suggests that it's it's second century at least, if not later. Mm. Okay. So yeah, I, I, that's I would what say I've heard, so. I would say mm-hmm. the fact that it's in the Gospel of Thomas mainly attests to the influence of Matthew's Gospel. Of Matthew, oh, it mm-hmm. makes sense. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, okay. So moving on then with this. Well, so when. Obviously, the parable of the wheat and the tares is meant to be taken with the interpretation in Matthew 13, 36-43. And when you you look at it together, it has Jesus depicting the kingdom of God. Now, remember, this is a parable about what the kingdom of God is like. So the kingdom of God is this starkly apocalyptic scenario that's primarily about the separation of evildoers from the righteous at the final judgment. And, you know, to me, I'm just like, wait, What? But does it fit within the other ones, like the mustard seed or the leavened bread? It was just like it doesn't fit within what Jesus has been saying about the kingdom in Matthew's gospel up to this point. As a whole, exactly. Yes, yes. and so I'm just, I'm just like, wait, you know, ha, ha, Jesus is trying it, it, all of it. Where, where did Jesus all of it? I mean, it's like Jesus is talking about, um, you know, he, he's he's talked about the kingdom of God as being about fulfilling all righteousness through the practice of mercy, faithfulness, and restorative justice. And now all of a sudden he shifts to this apocalyptic judgment thing where where mm-hmm. the kingdom is all about separating the, the good from the evil and, and destroying the evil. And that, that doesn't make right. any sense to me. That Mm-mm. just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, now, you know, we have seen this, this, these themes in, in before, uh, for example, in Mark's gospel, you know, the idea is that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of God and the evildoers will be thrown in the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We saw that in Mark's um, uh, passage about stumbling blocks and how it's better to enter uh, into, into um, the kingdom with one hand or one eye than, than to be thrown into uh, the outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, and again, I find, it's inter- I find it interesting that in that section, Mark specifically identified Gehenna as, you know, a, sort of a metaphor for hell or the place of punishment for the wicked mm-hmm. dead. And Matthew simply speaks of the furnace of fire. <laughs> and so it, mm-hmm. it seems to be that Matthew has some, again, I think Matthew has a more developed apocalyptic theology than Mark does. And so I think, I think we see this coming out in Matthew here. I, I, do have to, I do have to qualify what I said about Jesus' teaching of the kingdom not making sense here. I mean, there, there, are, there, there is a notable exception, for example, in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, you know, and he says, depart from me, you evildoers, for I never knew you. You know, so you've got some of that. But and and also in the early parts of Matthew's gospel, he does depict depict a clash of kingdoms from the start, and and so you you know you could see that perhaps in in this in this idea of good versus evil, but it makes sense to me that the harsh quality of this parable is occasioned by 
just the high degree of opposition, even the hostility that Matthew's community faced. Uh, and it just simply does, in my opinion, it's, it's not coherent with the image of the kingdom in Jesus' teaching, even in mm-hmm. Matthew's gospel up to this point. It, well, I think we could talk later it, of, um, does this ultimately hopeful or is this, op- I don't know. Well, I mean, um, I think you do sure. have. I think you know. I think I think you do have this sense in which um, this parable, I think, from Matthew is meant to uh, reassure um, the community that despite the opposition and even hostility they're facing from the hands of quote unquote evildoers, um, that um, God's kingdom will prevail in the end, and and so you know that that they are going to be rewarded and that um, they're going to be vindicated. Um, uh, I don't see Jesus teaching about the kingdom as being primarily about vindicating us. <laughs> I see Jesus teaching of the parable of the kingdom as being primarily about God's purposes being vindicated in the world. And uh, so, um, okay. um, that's where I differ with, with this parable. I, I did, I just don't see that as reflecting Jesus teaching. On yeah, about the kingdom. I, I, I agree. I agree. And yet again, there it shows up. Right. We don't always have a choice not to preach it. I know. At I know. least I, know. I didn't. Yeah. So let's move on then. So to, then by contrast, uh, yeah, we have we hear a very different version, I think, of what the kingdom of heaven is like in the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. And mm-hmm. again, here Matthew is is taking material both from Mark and from Q, because there are parallels in Mark and in Luke. Now both the mustard seed and the leaven were shocking analogies for the kingdom of God. The people who heard these parables would have been shocked. Mustard seed was a weed that farmers sought to eradicate, basically. It is not something positive. And leaven is a common metaphor for corruption in the Bible. Um, But here, in a fashion very consistent, I think, with his teaching about the kingdom elsewhere, Jesus uses the unexpected to startle his audience and lead them to see the kingdom as something that cannot be contained by their normal expectations. And so in both of these parables, then, Jesus points to the surprising growth of the kingdom in the mustard seed and perhaps even the inevitable growth of the kingdom in the parable of the leaven, despite all appearances to the contrary right. at the present time. And here, I think, you know, Matthew is taking, I would say, there's no question about the authenticity of these parables, that Jesus, right. these are parables of Jesus. Matthew's taking these parables and using them to encourage his, his community. That makes total sense to me. That does make sense to me. The, the, sits, the parable of the wheat and tares doesn't. I'm sorry, go ahead. Right. Oh, I was going to say, and yet it sits there with the wheat and the tares. I right. Mean, it's hard. Again. Well, when I preach do you, this passage. Do you, find, do you find a way to to make them all fit together so that well, you, you could provide this? Or or do you just say, I, I don't think we could get by discarding the wheat, wheat and the tares. I no. Mean, I, but, I don't think I could go. No. I don't think I could go preach on, well. We don't think Jesus actually preaches. Well, you know, we're going to disregard the Bible. I, I don't think we can get by no, with that. So right, I think- right. So when I preach on this, I'm going to read this whole section. I'm going to yeah. read. I'm going to read Matthew 13, 24 through forty three. I'm going to read the whole that, section. That that makes much more sense, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And and you know, I think that's one of the things we need to do in trying to address this passage, right? In a helpful way you know, in our congregations. But right, right. I, I, I have a couple more observations, and I'll get to some of my thoughts about that. All right, all right. <laughs> so um, one of the things I think we should notice also is that this section of Matthew's parables discourse contains a second statement about the purpose of Jesus' teaching in parables. And here he's again following Mark. Mm-hmm. But Matthew alone adds the fulfillment formula that Jesus did this to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet and proceeds to quote Psalm 78.2, primarily focusing on the first part of the citation, I will open my mouth to speak in parables. So again, you know, Matthew finds this, this scripture in the Psalms about speaking in parables, and he sees Jesus as speaking in parables in fulfillment of that. So I think now we come to the question, what do we make of this reading? (laughs) Yes, okay. Again, I don't see how it's possible just to get by reading the parable of the tares and the interpretation alone 
as the revised common lectionary wants us to do. I mean, you're kind of boxed into a corner there. You don't really have any wiggle room whatsoever. Right, right. How do you, it's like, <laughs> it just doesn't work. <laughs> right? Uh, I, I don't think, I don't, it unless, it unless you are going to go out and preach well, this, <laughs> this judgment idea. You know, yeah. This judgment idea, which, which I think has been done for centuries. Oh, of course it has. Of course it has. But I, I simply don't see it as being consistent with, with you know, I, I cannot say that I'm comfortable preaching on the parable of the wheat and the tares, nor its interpretation as a straightforward teaching of Jesus, which is the way it's been handled for centuries. I just yeah. don't think it fits. Um, I agree. I do not believe that kind of apocalyptic judgment is what the kingdom of God is about. I, I just don't believe that. That's, that's not right. what Jesus has to say about the kingdom. On the other hand, and, and you know, I'm not, I don't feel like, you know, in some, in some places, you know, conservative scholars would say, well, you're imposing your own interpretation on Jesus, or you're imposing your own agenda on Jesus, or you're selecting a canon within the canon, or, you know, you're being too selective in, 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 your, in your interpretation here. I, to me, what I'm trying to do is be faithful to what I see as the core of Jesus' teaching in the kingdom elsewhere, and this just doesn't fit that. It doesn't fit. And if, to be cons- if, if Jesus is consistent and God is consistent, which we trust, <laughs> then this doesn't make sense, right? No, it, it doesn't, yeah. Now, on the other hand, you know, I think it might be possible to focus on the situation of Matthew and his community and their response to the conflict and hostility they experienced, much as we discussed with reference to John's gospel. But I think most of us, as you mentioned, we're going to have to tread very carefully here because I don't think most of our members have the background to be able to separate Jesus and Matthew. I think that right. to them, Jesus and Matthew are one and the same, and they don't have mm-hmm. you know, the background to be able to separate that. Um, so what do we do? I, that's a good question. I, I think another thing we have a problem with is that we have to resist the tendency that most of us have had, and actually that has been the case throughout the history of the church, that when reading a parable like the wheat and the tares, the church has assumed that we are the righteous. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, whoever's whoever's dealing with this, whoever's preaching on it, assumes that we're in the we, we're in the righteous, we're in the we're in the good group, and you know, again, I I think I think that's a danger that we that we tend to assume that. So this I is a, this is a, this is an almost impossible passage to preach on, and and uh, um, you know. Um, honestly, I'm not really sure at this point what I'm going to do, but, uh, <laughs> I right. have to say, I have to say, uh, I'm not going to preach a sermon about uh, try, promoting the idea that the kingdom of God and Jesus teaching is about the separation of, of the good so right. that they get to have this, you know, um, great reward and, and the evil who are destroyed. I, I don't see that as being I, Jesus theology. And I don't think... I don't think that's healthy either. I no. don't think it's I don't think it's healthy or helpful and all it does is confuse people when we need to be get consistent with I how agree. we with our with our lens to them. I agree. So, yeah. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. Hi, friends, we're back, and we're going to switch gears now and see what Calvin had to say about this parable, and I think we're going to have some expectations fulfilled with our treatment of Calvin. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting when you think about our tradition and how this kind of came down to us, and actually, I think it's really important to be aware of um, because it's that kind of expected interpretation, and I'm looking today at Calvin's commentaries in particular, and uh, as I mentioned, I, I had a move, and so I don't have access to all of my things. But um, I did look also at how Calvin comes to the entire teaching, uh, which is interesting because it's part of this whole harmonization process that he does. But um, he does talk, he is aware of this whole grouping of parables together. Um, and uh, he he knows, for example, one of the things he really emphasizes is this whole teaching and that these are being taught to all these listening people. And, and he does have this realization that not all of those people will become disciples. Yeah, it's, um, uh, the audience is the crowds initially. Exactly. And, 
It fits well into um, Calvin's broader theology of the elect, emphasizing why some respond to the word and some will not. I find um, it, I find I, it interesting that you know um, <laughs> most New Testament scholars will say that that was the purpose of Matthew's parables discourse was that that was the problem that they were trying to wrestle with uh, was why are some responding to the word and why do so many not? So right, I think that's, right. I mean, I think Calvin's on target with that at least. Exactly. Of course, his explanation is because some are, <laughs> right. you know, but he, this gets pretty deep. So what I do think is interesting is he emphasizes that all hear the news mm-hmm. and it is this, this, this wording alone is not reserved for a special few. That's it's not, not like something elect- that you tend to li- to think about with with dual double predestination. You know, you tend to think that that the reprobate people aren't even going to listen. Right, and actually, and as we get into this, Calvin was very insistent that everybody have access to the word, mm-hmm. even if they didn't respond to it. And he also is always going to hold out hope that someone will respond to it later, and so. That's really interesting. Um, and I find, because it, I find it fascinating because I think, as I mentioned before on the podcast, you know, I read a book on four views of on salvation, and there were there were some um, folks. There were a couple of scholars. They were so into double predestination that they made the comment that even if that that you know, the question is, what about those who've never heard? You know, what happens to them? And and it was like something like, well, God in his providence kn- knew that even if they had heard, they wouldn't respond. So it's like there are a lot of people with who, are, who, who buy into this double predestination that really don't seem to care about everyone hearing the word like John Calvin did. And so I, right. I, I want to give him credit for that. I think, and that's really, that's an interesting point on his part. And I think it's also interesting um, that he... Uh, doesn't have kind of a, a determinism that we kind of expect goes with mm-hmm. it, like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I it, it's hard for me to fully wrap myself brain around some of the things that were going in, on in Calvin's head. Yeah. But um, I, I think because of this, there's a this Calvin has a little bit more of a hopeful side than we sometimes give him credit for. Sure. As he said, quote, all were eager to hear, but not all equal desirous to receive instruction. Sure. And um, interestingly enough, and I'm going to talk about her later. I've been reading um, Sajin Pack. We've we've met her before. She's a very fine Reformation scholar, but she also gives us this glimpse of a more hopeful Calvin that has sometimes come down to us, and and um, and from her study. So well, and as anyway, you pointed Cal- out, there are times in the commentaries where you know Calvin um, does hold out hope for for right. you know those who have not heard or those who have not responded. But Calvin um, here provides us, he looks at the parable of the weed and the weeds, and I'm going straight to that. Now, this obviously is the only time he sees it, so it's kind of on its own in the harmonization process. And he separates it entirely from the parable that precedes it. Yeah. And, and he, acknowledges, he acknowledges that he is handling it different, differently than other earlier commentators. And I bet you know how he does this, right? But I think it's interesting there. He goes out of his way. He, he, he says, look, most people assume the weed and the tares says the same exact thing as the parable of the sower. That's how it's been inter- interpreted in the past, according to Calvin. And he says, I don't agree with this. So in some Good ways, for him. <laughs> he, he acknowledges that this doesn't fit just as we did. But right? he's not ready to go so far as to say, oh, this is Matthew's interpretation <laughs> right. or this is... Um, or, or, or this doesn't fit in with the kingdom of God. So he's like, so he just takes it on its own. <laughs> well, and I think here we see Calvin. For Calvin, Calvin could not distinguish between Matthew and Jesus. That, that, oh, that, yes. That, that, that awareness had not come about yet. Exactly. So for him, obviously, it's a parable of double predestination. Yeah. And to argue this point, he must separate it from that one that precedes it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, here he ignores Matthew's organization strategy. Well, he has uh, to, I would think he has to ignore the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven as well, right? Yeah. yeah. So we're going to dig in now to it. First, Calvin argues that the godly are mentioned so that they do not give up hope within this fallen world. Um, and so that's interesting. In other words, he's trying to... Um, He's trying to not just talk about the evil, but he's trying to balance it off, saying, look, mm-hmm. there's still hope here for you. 
Well, um, and I think that's in line with that sort of pastoral motivation that we were talking about on Matthew's part by mm -hmm. addressing his community. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important to note here that Calvin kind of separates the truly evil from the natural errors of the fallen world. And this is kind of deep. He does not spell this out in any systematic format. But I think it is important to point out here that he understands that all people, even those who are saved, will sin. So he kind of takes it apart from some type of idealistic perfection of maybe a priesthood or people that have elevated themselves up. All are fallen. But what's interesting here is that he talks about the tares and then talks about those who are truly wicked. So I'm pretty impressed by Calvin on this. I think that's pretty astute of him to be able to make that observation because I, I think um, in the history of the church, you know, um, uh, people have tended to just paint with a broad stroke, you know, with a broad brush, you know, that anybody who's not one of us is wicked or evil. And I like the fact that Calvin recognizes, you know, that um, a person may or may not be a Christian, but that doesn't necessarily make them truly evil. Right, right. So this is really... I mean, this is really interesting. Now, he doesn't, at least here, completely define all what he means by sure. this wicked. And uh, anyway, there is more on it. So uh, I'll go on. In its discussion as he, about the wicked, he claims that there, there are those who are solely seeking to do harm. These, um, these are, these are this, these real people. It's not the person who still is. <laughs> called to strive to follow God, but rather just plain does wicked things. Mm -hmm. um, Not the person who's kind and caring, but just doesn't happen to go to church. This is the person who is actively seeking to do harm to others. Right, right. Now, um, we know that Calvin does not actually adopt a, the dualistic theology, as, as we've seen this kind of discussion even before. And but I think what's interesting is that you hear glimpses of it in here. In other words, he's not mm -hmm. fully divided himself from the medieval worldview. But he does, interestingly enough, even go out of his way to remind us that the devil cannot create. And he points out that the Manichaeans use the text to support their dualistic position. Right. Ah, so interesting. they the, the the evil and the the good and the evil as creators and, and is that 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 um, cosmic fight. No, this is different. This are these people are created from God and they are fallen and they are bent on doing harm. Well, um, and it might be helpful to just mention to our listeners that uh, Manichaeism was kind of a variant of Gnosticism, where you've got um, uh, spiritual uh, realities are good, and and in Manichaeism there's the image of light, and and everything material is evil and sinful, and so the the whole the whole. Uh, goal then of the spiritual quest is to be freed from this evil material world and return to the light in, the Mac in a Manichaean perspective. Right, right. And again, you've got a, stri a strict dualism, yeah. It's strict dualism, exactly. Um, so, but here Calvin talks about these people are, are just different from those who are sinned in their fallen state. He does say, which is interesting, that, quote, as long as the church is on a pilgrimage in this world, the good and the sincere will be mixed in with the bad and the hypocrites. So in other words, the church can't be this kind of purely pure sense of goodness that they want it to be. And I think this is important in this time frame when you have people who are trying to really create this perfectly pure church and, if you will, cut out anyone who's mm -hmm. sinful. Mm -hmm. um, and well, and I, I would say I will say that that's a theme that that you know contemporary New Testament scholars are still dealing with is that you know is that the idea is that in the church you know you're 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 not going to ha always have a, a pure uh, community right. of faith. Um, I, you know, I must say I wonder if that leads us toward that view of identifying ourselves as the, the righteous in the parable so. and others as well, the wicked. <laughs> I'm picking on Stan, Stanley Hoyerhaus here a little bit, but this is kind of his position. He's oh, like, really? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you don't, we need to really strive for the purity of the church. And at some point you just don't even spend your time. Wow. Um, yeah. That's yeah. Hauerwas. He says that you don't even, you don't even bother with people. 
that at some level. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. At least the, at least the lecture I heard yeah. um, him give. And I was, I was kind of taken aback. Yeah. And I think he was all trying to argue for really building the church in its purity. But the problem is it was kind of fully leaving out those who mm. on that side. And wow. I, I guess there's some of that here in Calvin for the truly evil. Right. But right. Um, I, it, it's interesting because he, he still, he's still, I'm not quite sure who they are. But I, I, I like the fact that he makes an attempt to, def, to define that in terms of actively seeking to do harm. You know, that's, that's something right, that's, right. I, you know, I've never run across that either. You know, I think it's really hard to define the wicked in the Bible, but the wicked in the Bible are those, they're, they're the wealthy who oppress people and take advantage of them. Uh, the wicked in the Bible are the ones who, who know what is right and do what is wrong intentionally. You know, they, right. they, they, they're not stumbling or accidentally, you know, doing this. They're, right. they're, they're, they're choosing intentionally to do what they know to be wrong. Um, and, and, uh, but, but it, it really does. Uh, to me, I, I would say, ha not having heard this from Calvin, I've always had this idea that the wicked in the Bible are those who are actively seeking to harm others. And so mm -hmm. I, I, I resonate with what he's saying here. Right, right. Um, so I think one of the things we have to think about it, though, is that the wicked, in this case, aren't the people staying away from the church, want anything to do with it, but they're enmeshed in it. And that seems... Like in today's world, most of those people are not not entirely, but be completely mm. not involved in the church at all. Mm -hmm. I think it I think it lags back to the idea of Christendom. Right. Really, everybody and and in Calvin's purview at least identifies as being Christian, um, not uh, not as being an atheist or anti-Christian or or right. something else. Um, so that caught me as just time time impacted. Well, and I think, um, I mean, up until up until about 50 years ago, that was kind of all still true in this country. I agree. You know, I agree. And, and so you, you heard sermons on this. I don't know yeah. that a sermon on that idea, you know, that, that, you know, you're going to find good and sincere people in the church mixed with the bad and the hypocrites. I mean... <laughs> To some extent, we're all we're all bad and hypocrites in the church. Yeah, right? I was going to say, right? <laughs> so, mm. um, I'm I'm not sure that message really has much traction in our day, <laughs> but uh, it's been it's one I think that has been there for a long time. As long as you, as too. long as you, as long as you see the the world as as the church, as long as you see the world right. and the church as you know, um, sort of equivalent to one another. I, I agree. That what's interesting is now Calvin in that context does seem to have an awareness of a broader world beyond the church. Mm. Um, and so it's kind of like he has this European world where he's only surrounded by people who are pretty much in the church. There's a few Jewish people that he's encountering. We don't even know how many, um, but not very many, but he's also a man of the early modern world. He's also a man that's going to be familiar with, this new overseas discoveries that are happening. Yeah. And so he sees this as a microcosm for the bigger picture of the world being the broader world. And this is the pressing energy that it must be spread to all those people mm. who have not heard it. Mm. Um, and, and I pointed this out by the time Calvin uh, was alive, overseas discoveries were well known and they had pretty sophisticated publications, the global map. I looked up a 1540 map, for example, when Calvin wrote the Harmony of the Gospels. And, you know, you could see that the New World was, it's entirely um, new continent, North and South America. They're not well-defined. They're not accurate. But it's no longer this idea that even Europe, Asia, it just turns into one. They recognize this is a new space. This is a new world. Um it's no longer if you fun. sail too far, you sail off the edge of the earth. Exactly. <laughs> or, um, you know, they always thought, yeah, edge of the earth, or even if it's round, that you would suddenly just sail and hit India, that they right. realize there's a whole other body of, right. of land there. Well, that was Columbus's in, discovery, right? Well, yes, Columbus's discovery, right, in 1492. So here you have, for 1540, we have good enough overseas discoveries that we can put together loosely a, a North and South America. South America looks a little more normal than North America, but they're there. 
Um, well, and I think and about so Ferdinand, Ferdinand Magellan also. He was 15, 19. Right. So, yeah, this stuff is it's new and interesting, but Calvin clearly has this awareness of this. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's important to point out. A worldview that li- had been somewhat limited, but is being expanded. You know, it's kind of like us in thinking yeah. about space. I mean, yeah. <laughs> right? Right. Um, now, what I'm putting this out is I'm kind of presupposing what you might be thinking. Um, but how is Calvin then responding to Jews? How did these people fit within the context? Are they reprobate? Are they evil? Are, what are they? And so this is where I looked at the work of Sajjan Pat. Um, and she discusses the role of Jews in Calvin's theology. And because Calvin's treatment of Hebrew scripture, his treatment of the Jews, according to Pat, is significantly better than his contemporaries, mm. including Luther. Yeah. And because he has such a respect for Old Testament tradition. And what is interesting is that although the Jews are outside the church, he does not put them into the same criticism as the Christians who give lip service to the faith but plant evil. Yeah. Calvin looks at Jews as those not completely estranged from God because they are part of a remnant of faithful Jews. You know, I'm thinking about this and I, I'm thinking I'm 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 thinking, you know, the, the, the people of this era learned their Hebrew from Jewish scholars. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So so it's very likely that Calvin was taught Hebrew by a Jewish rabbi. <laughs> and I should look that up. I don't know the answer to yeah. that. Uh, but but many of them were, right? Yeah. Um I mean, because yeah. they, they were the only ones who knew Hebrew. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I'm going to head back to our com- commentary on the text. And one of the important concepts that Calvin introduces here is that of regeneration. The elect, according to Calvin, are not created good at creation, interesting, but rather regenerated by his grace. Mm, yeah. So... It's not that they were created bad either. They're just kind of created. I thought that was interesting. Um, And likewise, the devil does not create, but is able to sow seeds that will harm the pure seed. Mm. That's how he interprets this. Right. And as we learn from this parable, that this is the reality that there will be weeds and wheat together, that our experience of the church here on earth will never be without both. Now, this is, um, as he claims that, scarily enough, Pastors ought, of course, to be occupied in cleansing mm. the church. Oh and in this, they should be helped by all the godly. Ooh, so that... Yeah, I would say pastors ought to be occupied in cleansing their own lives first. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This, uh, to me, this this take on Calvin is one of the biggest problems when you... It's yeah. like pulled out of context in, to me because that kind of leads to this idea that we get to judge other people. Right. We get to decide whether... And, and it seems... in. Here's where Calvin seems inconsistent. Well, and it leads to excommunication, or it leads to the pastor making an annual visit to tell you whether or not you can take communion next year at the church and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but then in the very next sentence, he says that we should not disassociate ourselves from those who are not pure. Okay. So in other (laughs) words, (laughs) we should not try to separate ourselves from the world, but be present in it. So then Calvin is uh, trying to temper the desire to purge questionable behavior. So he says, look, mm. there's all these Anabaptist groups out there trying to make themselves these utopia of perfectly godly people. Right. That's not the right way to do it. But, hey, you should be careful and not just let every behavior <laughs> go in your and I, I, I think he's trying to be helpful to pastors, but yeah. it comes off being we get a choice to judge. We get a choice to decide who's in and who's out. Well, we, we've seen that before, that, that Calvin's theology was primarily pastoral in nature, and he's trying to encourage people who are in the church and people who are working in the church. Right. So, But what I do love about all of this <laughs> and his judgment, he holds out for that that person that seems evil on that that thief on the cross yeah. type of person yeah. that that comes comes to faith at the very end of life and claims that ministers should not allow behavior that tempt others but rather still encourage the word and that to grow mm-hmm. and in the end the work of separating the weeds is that of the angels and it is no surprise that he views the imagery of the furnace as punishment for those who are straight but he ultimately ends his discussion with a process 
of the harvest of the weeds. I find it interesting that that he says, you know, that that, that ministers should should occupy themselves with uh, purifying the church. But um, he also says that in the end, it's the work of angels. So which is it? <laughs> it's just not, cons- it's just yeah. not, the, it's not consistent. And I, I, I think we have trouble finding inconsistencies in Calvin. We want him, we want him to be consistent. And, well, but uh, I mean, especially in the same document here, it's really troublesome yeah, for us. That's true. I, but I, I was going to say, you know, I think when you're dealing with pastoral issues, you know, that's a very situational thing, and that's where inconsistencies come. I mean, you're going to have all kinds of inconsistencies when you're trying to be pastoral with your theology. Right, right. I agree. So anyway, just a very colorful look at Calvin today. Nice. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We're back for a little bit more discussion on this parable that causes us so much stress <laughs> and how we, we could preach it. And I think we need to go back to this really dense issue of Matthew's voice versus Jesus's voice and the problems with maybe preaching it that way. Is there an opportunity to preach it that way? What do you think, Alan? I just really, you know, I don't, I just don't. I mean, I think it depends on your setting. You know, if you've got people who are who are grounded enough in their faith and in their understanding of the Bible to be able to have that discussion about, you know, this isn't consistent with Jesus' voice elsewhere, then then I think that's that's your call. But I I just think for most pastors in most churches, that's just not going to be a helpful conversation to try to have from the pulpit. Now, you know, if somebody comes up and asks you a question personally, you could you could maybe deal with some of that a little more. And and I think you really, in in my experience, I, I, this is where this is where working in the Baptist world really helped me because um, you know I'm dealing with some of these issues as a seminary professor teaching at a Baptist seminary. And you know when you're dealing with these folks, if it's not in the Bible, you're you're not you don't have an argument. So I and I and I so I learned that early on in my career, and I think I think that's helpful for a lot of people. Is that you know if you can show them biblical passages about the kingdom of God, even in Matthew's gospel, that are very different from this, you know that that there's no sense of this um, destruction as a part of the purpose of God. You know I, I think um, that can be help, a helpful part of the individual discussion you might have with somebody who asks you a question. But I, I don't. I I'm I'm not comfortable. I've been a I've been at my church almost nine years, and I don't feel comfortable preaching. Uh, you know, preaching a sermon and talking about Jesus' voice versus Matthew's voice here. I I think that would be very, very difficult unless you have yeah, as you said, unless you just have a really really highly educated and biblically educated um, congregation. Um, so I agree. I, you know, as you're talking about the kingdom of God, the, even talking about this in terms of, um, of, of judgment seems to kind of go against not only the kingdom passages, but also God, who God is. And, and so I'm taking this idea of this theological lens of God is love. And if God's love, we're not talking about, you know, <laughs> damnation, right? So um, that's kind of one of the takes I use for it but um, well and even even looking back into the hebrew bible and the prophets talking about um the reign of god and 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 things like that you know you do have you do have some passages in the prophets that talk about the destruction of the wicked but here again we're talking about truly evil people we're not talking about people who just don't happen to be a part of israel because part of the vision of the prophets is that all the nations come streaming to Jerusalem to know and worship the Lord uh, in in, right. in the end, and that's that's the that's the vision of the kingdom in the prophets. And so, you know, um, um, yeah, I, it's not just a theological construct of if God is love. It's also you know the even not just. Jesus' teachings of the kingdom in Matthew. You could say Jesus' teachings on the kingdom in general. You could you could expand it beyond that to the biblical statements about the reign of God in the in the prophets. I mean, they just don't seem to support this idea. 
Um, I, and, and we've talked right. about apocalyptic thinking, you know, how it was introduced right. into the Jewish world through the Babylonian exile and their contact with Zoroastrianism, and, which was a dualistic religion that had an evil God and a mm. good God. And, mm-hmm. and um, um, you know, you, you clearly have an apocalyptic influence in the New Testament. Um, and, and I think Jesus probably did think in some apocalyptic categories because he would talk about the end or he would talk about the coming of the Son of Man. You know, he had this kind of idea of the, of the future of the kingdom, which is part of apocalyptic. And, and part of that was really that, that sort of assurance of people who were struggling with the evil in this world. Right, that God's purpose is going to prevail in the end, and you have that, I think, in parables like the the mustard seed and the leaven. Uh, mm-hmm. At least the implication is there, and, but um, but this overtly, you know, just destructive idea that you know that that the, that the wicked are are destroyed and burned in the fire, you mm-hmm. know, it's just it just doesn't seem to fit. It seems much more consistent with apocalyptic thinking. I agree. It definitely fits into that. And I think, you know, as I'm processing this with you, I mean, obviously the, the big overriding question is, is the Odyssey. And it's, it's, the, it's one that we all think about that, you know, honestly, we, I think we think about it all the time because why, why do people do evil, truly evil things? And, um, you know, we have psychology coming in. We have all these modern ways of trying to explain it. And yet we don't, we just don't really understand well, and maybe maybe we've had the answer staring us in the face all along. Maybe that's where we take this: is that we talk about the, the problem of evil in the world, and and how does the kingdom address that? You know, um, I don't think we use the parable of the tares and the ideas presented in the parable of the tares to do that. But I I do think you know that that if as I mentioned before, if we can if we if we include the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven in this in the reading, in the gospel selection for the day, I think it gives us the opportunity right. then to address broader kingdom themes and the idea of, of God's kingdom ultimately righting the wrongs and God's kingdom ultimately um, uh, addressing evil um, according to God's purposes. Well, one of the things that strikes to me about it is, as you're talking about this too, is that, you know, when you're following God and you're out there and you're spreading the good news and you expect people and you realize not everybody's buying in. But at the end of the day, the message is the wheat's going to flourish. You know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the good is going to win. The good is going to survive. I, I don't know if you could take it that direction, but I think you could. I think you could. Uh, in my experience, I'm just struggling with getting, getting people in my church to, to to buy in to the message and and you know i'm not gonna say well that's because they're evil and wicked and they are reprobate and and hardened or anything like that but i mean I, i to me i just see i see the people in my church as being so pulled in so many different directions and so distracted by so much about uh, right. our lives these days that they just don't have the bandwidth to be able to devote to to faith right Right, exactly. They well, don't, at least they don't make space for the bandwidth, at least, to, 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 to deal with faith. Right. Well, it, you know, and, and maybe I'm going way too far off, but, you know, I'm always thinking of this in terms of a piece of wheat as maybe a human being and a tear as a human being. Maybe it can it be interpreted more in terms of actions, bad actions, good actions? Well, uh, I mean, that's not the way the that's not the way the parable of the tares and the interpretation frames it. I mean, it's clear that the parable of the tares is talking about people. Yeah, but yeah, but that might be a way to that might be a way to shift the focus, you know, to in in uh, to talk about actions, you know. Uh, I yeah. Yeah, it's it's an awkward space, right? Because then, how far are you pushing it too far out of alignment with what it actually says? Well, and I yet, think at I the think, same time, we're talking about a parable that we're questioning whether Jesus ever even said. Right, right. I, I don't believe. So, I don't believe well, Jesus it, did. I don't believe Jesus did. If and, that's the case, yeah. then I think we could take it back to look in terms of, of what does this tell us about good and evil within a construct of this world? Mm-hmm. We hear the good news, and why, darn it, doesn't everybody jump yeah. on board? And in fact, it can be maybe encouraging to say. Uh, don't give up because it's right. still going to grow. Right, right. 
Yeah, I, I am. I'm. I'm. I'm probably not going to make much mention, if, if any at all, to the parable of the wheat and the tares. I'm probably not going to make much right. mention to it, of it all. I'll read the passage, but I will not. I will not address it in right. my sermon. I think I. I don't think I'll. I'm not going to do a line by line Bible study. No. <laughs> no. This is yeah, this is an occasion similar. for a more. I think this is an occasion for a more topical kind of sermon. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, and those are good. Those mm-hmm. are good too because they help us realize that the Bible does take on some of our most our biggest questions. Well, and here's the thing: is that in terms of addressing felt needs, how many people in our pews are troubled by the things they see going on in the world right now? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, all of them. Yeah. All of them. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's a felt need that can be addressed by this passage. Yeah, I just don't I think we want to spend too much time or energy dealing with the details of the parable of the tares and the wheat. I agree. <laughs> I agree 100%. Yeah. Well, thanks, Alan. Thank you, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.